This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. The reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as the radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we all are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What vitamin D is? Some of you need to take some more of that. I do. Golly, what a winter. And I, I just came from the sunny place. Well, anyway. Um, there's a sign when you go into Homer, and the sign says that um, we are all here because we are not all there. Did you know that? Those of you who didn't laugh, you need to take some more vitamin D. <laughs> We are all here because we are not all there. Okay. What that means is that uh, we got we got issues. And here's a, here's a the, the front of a card I got from my wife on our 32nd anniversary. Marriage means commitment. Of course, so does insanity. <laughs> we are not all here because we are not all there. And. Um, uh, I want to I want to use that as a way of saying you know we're in a mess as human beings we're best off to admit the reality that we find ourselves in we're in a mess and God has spoken into our mess and there's a doctrine that I like to bring before you every so often it's called the doctrine of revelation not the book of revelation but the doctrine of revelation which is that God has looked down upon that which he has created And he recognizes that we're in a mess and he's given us a voice, a word, the Bible, to get us out of that mess. And um, uh, we, we become out of sync with God and he's giving us the opportunity to become in sync with him once again. And through Jesus Christ is the full revelation of that. But it's that idea that God has spoken. And those who want to live in sync and have less pain in their lives, okay, will listen to what he says and respond in faith. That's, it's very simple. <laughs> listen to what he says. And, and your life will find less pain in, so you, and more hope. 
So uh, that's, that's what's behind the doctrine of revelation. Now, we're um, going to be, our, well, our two texts in the series that we're going to be touching on, I should say that, are Ephesians 5, which we're going to hear over and over, uh, that was just read for us, but also 1 Corinthians 7. These are, 1 Corinthians 7 is, is, uh, it speaks to singleness, what it means to be a single person and walk in this life in sync with God. And then Ephesians 5 is, is the marriage um, thing. So those are our two primary texts that we'll be coming back to again and again. Now, I want to recognize both marriages and singles as we go through this. So I just thought, now, these are ten different categories of persons that are, are probably in this room right now. And so let me just go down the list real quick. Happily married, married and hurting, married and spiritually unbalanced. That, that, let me explain that one. It means simply that you're married... And you're at a different level of, of walking with Christ than your spouse. So you're, it's, not, it's not equal. And uh, that, that happens. All right. Single and content being single. Single and afraid of marriage. Uh, there's lots of that today. And uh, we'll speak to that. Single but wanting to be married. Uh, divorced and healed. Wanting remarriage. Divorced and hurting. Wanting remarriage. Ooh, that's a bad one. We have a thing called divorce care that will help with that one. But... Um, that's, that's a recipe for another divorce. Uh, divorce and not wanting remarriage. Divorced and unhappily or happily married. So, or remarried. So you have all of these categories of people that are sitting around you, and probably more. And the Word of God, I believe, will speak to uh, your situation. Now, we're going to be talking mostly about marriage, but most of those categories up there have something to do with marriage. And the only one that really doesn't is single and content. But even for people who are single and content, God uses, now listen to this, God uses marriage as a metaphor to reveal who he is in, in the Bible. So we have lots of language about God being our spouse. God, uh, it, it, It's all over the Old Testament. It, it, the book of Revelation ends with a, a marriage between God and his people. So it's a metaphor that we can all learn from. Um, what we're going to talk about next week is single, what it means to be single, and the paradox, and I'll just say it right now, for single people is why does the New Testament say that, that to be single is such a high calling or can be such a high calling, and why do they feel like the church makes it such a low thing? So that's, that's just putting it out there. Uh, that's, we need to look honestly at that. All right, so um, my hope for all of us, whether we're married or single in this next in, uh, seven weeks, I believe, is that you will have a, a new, fresh, biblical vision for what it means to be married or single. That's it right there. And if we're going to get that, we're going to have to listen to God. I'm not going to do nearly, I do this about every two years. I try to do something on, on relationships or marriage, singleness, whatever. And this is going to be way more theologically driven. I don't have a lot of the how-to books out this time, <laughs> and whatever, for whatever that's worth. But uh, we're going to be looking. We want to hear from God and um, hear, hear what he had in mind when he created marriage, when he created human beings, and how we live that out as marriage or singles. And then uh, get some hope, because I do believe that brings hope. And then today we're going to look at what is, it, what is the marriage killer. And let me give you a hint. It's not communication. What a shallow answer that communication is the issue of all marriages. So, there's people that I've, that I've been you know, helping counsel with, and the, the last thing they need is more communication, I'll tell you that. 
when two people are yelling at each other. Yeah, a little silence would help, but anyway. That, it's, it's such a shallow answer that, that our culture gives to that question. of It, it isn't that. Let's, go, let's see what it is. All right, Jesus, I want you to think about, uh, about Jesus here for a moment, and, and Paul too, but let's, let's go to Jesus. Uh, people come to Jesus quite often with questions, if you read the scriptures, the gospels, and they want to know something from Jesus, and they want an answer from Jesus. And what, what uh, Jesus has a habit of doing and I don't know what your question is coming out of your category, your place, but just a warning on Jesus is he tends to uh, either ask a question back at you or he answers the question in such a huge way that it makes your, your question look really, really puny. And so you might think of um, the woman at the well. She asked about well, where do we worship God? Do we do it here in this mountain or do we do it in Jerusalem? What does Jesus say? It doesn't matter. You worship God in spirit and truth, or you don't worship him at all. It doesn't matter where you are. That's his answer. It's a bigger answer than she ever thought. You know? And the, the Good Samaritan, what does he want to know? He wants to know, who's my neighbor? Who's the one that I have to love? Where do I get to draw the line? And Jesus' answer is, hey, you don't get to draw the line. Everyone's your neighbor. So you ask this specific question, you get a huge answer from Jesus. So the, in Matthew 19, they, they come to him, and people come to him and ask about divorce. When is it allowable to divorce? And Jesus says there is. There's times for divorce. I believe in that, by the way. That is not the unforgivable sin. And, and sometimes the people who think it is are the ones who just really are, are justifying their own sin. Uh, so I'll, that's a whole... I get, I get really upset about that one. But at any rate, Jesus says... What he does is he takes people back to the original intent of marriage. The two shall become one. The two shall become one. He takes, he, he, they ask him the specific limited question about divorce, and Jesus gives this huge answer. He takes them right back to Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 24. And he says that God's, for this reason, for this purpose, God is... The, the, the two shall become one. The man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one. That is the purpose. Now, what does our culture say the purpose of marriage is? It's something like this, that two people might find happiness together, which easily gets mistranslated, of course, by meaning you, wife, need to make me happy. Right? That's how it gets mistranslated. But just take it at the best, it means two people finding happiness together. That's the rough definition that we have today. Very, very different from what God has said. Remember, we're in a mess. We need to listen to God. His purpose for marriage is that two people will become one. Adam, he, 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 all the animals were brought before him. He couldn't find anything there. And finally, he sees this woman named Eve, and he says, at last, whew, this is the one. And uh, he knows. Well, the two become what? They become naked. Naked. Now, when you see the word naked there, yeah, physically, but that's not even the half of it. It means totally open to the other person. It means that I can trust you with anything. I can be fully known by you, and I can be fully loved by you. Wow. That's what it means to be naked. And Paul amplifies all this in, in what this passage here. If you listen to verse, well, he quotes the same verse. Then he, he also says that if a man who loves his wife loves himself, 
Wow, if I love my wife, I'm actually loving myself. You see how the two have become one. If I love, and what that means is if I hurt my wife, who do I hurt? I hurt myself. You want to inflict pain? (laughs) You hurt your wife. You hurt your spouse. It it comes back at you. So this two becoming one is really, it's the essence, it's the purpose that God has stated for, for marriage, which are, the, the, the world around us is not uh, recognizing. I want to give you a, that card that I had the front cover. This is it right here. 32 years in October. And um, I, I got permission, by the way, on all this. This is really important, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Still crazy about you. That's what it says there. Crazy member. Insane. Okay. I'm blessed because of you. This is Patty speaking to me. Well, of course she is. But no. Um, I'm blessed because of you and your love for me these past 32 years. Remember, two becoming one. This is, I'm just trying to give you a clue as to what that might look like. Thank you for your ongoing support and encouragement. You're providing for our family the laughter and the fun we've had together and for loving me with all of my quirks. Boy, don't we have quirks. I mean, honestly, we've got quirks. And then she says, I appreciate you as my pastor, my lover, and my friend. Pastor. (laughs) I'll have to try that one out. (laughs) Well, at any rate, I I love, but it gets at the heart of what um, this is all about. To be her friend, we're going to talk about that, that that ultimately marriage is is its friendship at the core, its companionship. The two becoming one has, it's just this heart, these hearts get intertwined. And we have become fully known to each other. And it's painful. And we have become fully loved to each other. And it's beautiful. So we're experiencing, I mean, I can honestly say after 32 years, we're experiencing, this is not theory to me, when we talk about two becoming one. And I want you to hear that. Um, I, I think it might bring hope. Dude, we haven't got it all figured out. Let me tell you, but uh, we have uh, experienced, we have tasted uh, of what God is speaking of here. But the vision in in Genesis chapter 2 gets blurred by what happens in Genesis chapter 3. You get tired of me saying this, but the whole Bible is built on this foundation of what happens before Genesis chapter 3 and then, you know, what happens after. As people become rebellious against God, it is no, in that they get out of sync. They get out of sync with God. They get out of sync with each other. No longer is it easy to love the other person. What does Adam do, first of all? He blames his wife. We'll come to that in just a minute. They hide. So you have blaming and hiding and covering. Why should I be naked in front of somebody who's blaming? Eve, come on, all you women. Why would you want to become naked, vulnerable? I mean, totally in front of somebody who's blaming you. You see how we can no longer be fully known and fully loved. It's going to be much harder now. It's going to be a a process. All of that can't be taken for granted any longer. And so um, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3 in need. Now, I want to just share a quick story. We were on an airplane coming back from California to Seattle. Thursday? No, Wednesday. And in that leg of the flight, I had uh, a woman who was, I was on the aisle, uh, and this other woman that was here, and then uh, her, there was somebody else sitting there. She asked if, 
if her husband could sit there and uh, that was kind of cute, you know, and they do the whole trade thing, you know, if you don't mind and all that. And so she had another aisle seat. So this guy moved here so her husband could sit. And it turned out, by the way, Patty's sitting over here on the aisle. We, we you know, 32 years of marriage, we just figure out what we like and we're OK with each other. She's we, we both like the aisle. And since we can't sit in the same seat, you know, anyway, um, so I have this and it turns out and I quickly discovered she gets her iPad out and th- that they just got married. And they are coming back from their honeymoon. She's looking at all these photos from her wedding. And I'm telling you, there's gushing going on in aisle 15. <laughs> and I, I just, you can just feel it, you know. And um, now he, so she's got, and she, honey, look at this. Look at, look at, look, 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 you know, all this. And then he, but he's reading his sports magazine. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and she's okay with it. And I'm thinking, uh, this is the honeymoon period, isn't it? Should I tell her? <laughs> Should I tell her that, that, that in a short period of time that it won't be okay that he's reading the sports magazines while you're trying to get his attention on this, uh, you know? Yeah, I didn't tell her. There's, I don't want to make the honeymoon period any shorter than it will be. But... Um, that's what happens. And so we here's here's my analogy. It's just a rough analogy. It doesn't fit really theologically, but it's a teaching point. And that is that she thinks she's in Genesis chapter two, married to this guy and everything is wonderful. You can be fully. You know, I mean, everything. There's nothing to hide from. And you just love each other. And then you know, the hormones are kicking in and everything's good. But what the reality is, there's this. And this is something that every couple who's ever been married goes through at some level. And you can reduce it, uh, but at some level, you figure out that there's been a little bit of a switch and bait, false advertising thing going on with the person you married, right? I didn't know this about you. And, and so, you know, it, it, uh, it creates problems. Now, when you come to that point and you have options, and I'm going to give you uh, two options here that you have, we have, we all have. This is not... This is this is the norm, folks. So and this is I'm speaking about all of us here. This is one option, one view of where you can go, the therapeutic view. And this is this is when I say therapeutic. This is the, the what our culture. This is uh, if you're into psychology at all, the post Freudian mindset or, of the world is that I am wounded. I am a person who is wounded. The person I am married to is self-centered. This is when you wake up that day and you, they've hurt you and you wonder, why did I marry this person? It happens to everybody. It's normal. It's one of the things I have to say to couples. Uh, is it, when you're before they're married, you will experience this at some level. My and then the answer that the therapeutic view gives is that myself has been diminished, and I must expand myself, uh, actualize myself, whatever the, the words are, uh, and recover myself in this relationship, or it will end. That's that's the therapeutic. That's what you will hear if you go to most uh, secular counselors. Lots of books on that. And there's truth in it. There, I'm not trying to say there's no truth in it. We are all wounded. But there's no human being that hasn't been wounded by somebody, right? And you bring all those wounds to your marriage. You are marrying a wounded person. They've been yelled at by somebody. They've been put down by somebody. They have fears and things that, that are going on in their hearts because of what they've experienced. They may have been abused by somebody. All of that stuff is very real. But there's something deeper and more real. Let me 
let me give you another. This is this is from a term from psychology, but it's just it's confirmed in the scriptures. So I want to uh, put it before you. Uh, fundamental attribution uh, uh, theory, but the, or fundamental attribution error comes out of attribution theory. Now, it's a fancy word, and it comes out of psychology. Let me, let me read that for you. Um, we assign total responsibility or blame to others. Think of in a marriage. All of this stuff applies to single people, by the way. Everything, everything here. So don't, but I'm using marriage. Um, we assign total responsibility to blame or others for their behavior, their character. We call it a character deficiency. Other people have character deficiencies. For us, though, we explain away our own negative actions in terms of situational factors. Okay? In other words, it is not our fault because. Do you know that in tests that have been done, this is true for every human being, that we've all done this. And there's so much. In the secular writing, there's so much on this here. Now, uh, let me give you just an example. The reason I didn't do the dishes is because I had a really bad day. The reason Patty didn't do the dishes is because she's lazy. Now, that's what we do. I'm just trying to give you an example. And that's how we assign. We assign character deficiency to others while we excuse ourselves because we just, you know, things have happened to us. This is, Martin Luther said that the self is bent in on the self. This is part of that. We, we aren't able to objectively to see how our self-centeredness, we, I mean, we, we're, we're blind how do I put this? There's nothing that we are more blind to than our own self-centeredness. Okay? We're way more aware of what has been done to us than we are to the real issues of the heart. Now, the real issues of the heart um, get amplified. Our self-centeredness gets amplified by when we get wounded. When somebody wounds us, I mean, we, we want to wound them back, and that's our self-centeredness firing back at them. You see how the, in a marriage this can just create all kinds of, of chaos. Now, the Christian view here, I want to get that up in front of you. Oh, by the way, before we go there, I need to tell you that this, this is so confirmed in Genesis chapter 3. The woman, Adam says, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. Now, God is saying, what happened? And, and Adam is saying, well, you know, uh, I didn't really do anything wrong. It's just that the woman that you gave me, you know, that, that see, he, come on, Adam. And then, come on, all of you sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Don't we do that? It's tough. You know, that you read Genesis chapter 3, and one thing that will happen is if you allow it to, it will read you. That's what happens. All right. So we have a second view. The Christian view on this woundedness versus self-centeredness is very different. I am self-centered. I, it, it's, I'm, I'm the problem. It fundamentally, underneath my wounds, I have, no matter how much I've been wounded, I have self-centeredness issues in my life. And that's the Christian view. Um, it's very different. And the way this, uh, you know, in, in Christian marriage, the vows, have you ever listened to the vows? I, I don't know if people listen to them. They're, they're, you know, please listen to them. But when, they're, when you're getting married, you know, everything's, you know, anyway. But uh, you've got too many things going on. And these vows, though, they, yeah, one of the things we do in Mountain Men is get, is get guys to go back to their vows. What you are promising there is to love someone through what? Well, we, just, we give a few words to it through, uh, well, sickness and sorrow and poverty 
and death. Till death do us part. I mean, we love all the way. Come whatever happens. And we should throw in there through quirkiness and jerkiness and bad breath and whatever else, you know. I mean, that's all that stuff in marriage. You're going to love some. That's the promise you're making. And you're committing yourself to the future. What a scary thing to do. 32 years ago, I didn't know what I was. I mean, you know, you'd have some idea. Patty didn't. I mean, how did she know? She married a businessman. Here she, you know, and now she, oh, you know, I'm her pastor, I guess. So, um, but it's just, it's crazy what happens in life. And you're promising on that day that no matter what happens, I don't care what happens, I'm going to love you. That is what you do when you make a vow. So the Christian view is very realistic. That's what I'm trying to say here. It, it, is, it is compared with the culture's view about being happy. It's, this is, we're very realistic about all the possibilities that can happen in life. And, uh, yeah, and then we also have this view that when you have all these issues that come up in marriage, you're confronted with your self-centeredness. I was confronted with my self-centeredness very early in our, well, even in the dating. I mean, you're confronted with it. You're going you're to see yourself in ways that you don't want to see yourself. And the Christian view is that you're going to see that and you're going to start to change. You're going to become more the person that God wants to shape you into. Let me give you some hope. Because some of you, I know, really need hope at this point. And here, this will confirm what we just said. But in a survey that was done, a longitudinal survey, so that means over time, it was um, fascinating that people who were in unhappy marriages, who just hung in there, the ones that hung in there, about 60, I think it's two-thirds of them, five years later, said their marriages were happy. Okay? That's pretty strong. That's good. That's good news. That's hopeful for some of us to hear. If you can hang in there, uh, and what that mean, hanging in there usually means is that you will begin to deal with your stuff or you know, you two people dealing with their stuff, working on their stuff, their self-centeredness, there's lots of things that can happen in a marriage. Now, if only one of them does that, it's still better. Okay? I'm going to make that argument. But uh, we'll come to that later. So, here we go. Um, Jesus and Paul, I'm going to close this here. Jesus and Paul have both said that we have, a, there's a vision for marriage, the two becoming one, okay? But it's gotten blurred by what happens in Genesis chapter 3. It's gotten blurred by what's happened in your life. It's gotten blurred by the therapeutic worldview and all the rest. So how do we clarify the vision? In Paul says here, and this is our first verse in this passage that we're going to focus on, is that you are to submit yourselves to one another, husband and wife, you are to submit yourselves to one another. In what? Out of what? Out of reverence for Christ. That's your motivation right there. You would submit yourself to that person who is imperfect out of reverence for Christ. That's it. And in doing that, Paul is saying he's, he's coming straight at the issue, the fundamental issue in your life, which is self-centeredness. Now, he goes back. You can go forward on that one. Into the, he's going to talk about the husband's, the way he submits is by loving his wife. The wife submits by submitting to her husband. Here's a, we'll, fall, we'll die on that hill when we come to it. That's a, that's a live wire there. But let's go back. This is a hinge verse that goes back to verse 18. What is verse 18? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And one of the markers or indicators that you are filled with the Spirit of God is that you would submit yourself one to another out of reverence for Christ. 
What does the Spirit of God do? What does He want to do in your life and in my life? He wants to, above all else, He wants to reveal Jesus Christ to you. Revealing Jesus Christ to you. Revealing the one who... Um, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, was looking out for the interests of others. He was not, he considered others more important than himself, is how Paul puts it there. Becoming other-centered, you see, so being filled with the Spirit is the antidote to the, to the marriage killer. The marriage killer is your self-centeredness. Your self-centeredness. And you, I know you're thinking my spouse is, but no, that's, God doesn't let you off that way. Your self-centeredness, get rid of that therapeutic worldview, allow, allow God to speak to you, and let the Spirit fill you, okay? And what the Spirit is going to do is He's going to take you to not just to Jesus' life, but to His death on the cross. He's going to show you Jesus dying on the cross, and He's going to ask you, what do you think? The Spirit who wants to fill you takes you to the cross and says, look at Jesus, Look at how much he loves you. Look at this one who is wounded for you. He got what you deserve so that you can get what he deserves. How does that make you feel? And the response to that that gets us into places of healing is it makes me feel grateful and broken at the same time. Now, broken is very, very different. It's almost the opposite of being wounded, okay? Wounded is coming at things out of your fears, out of that which, those, those wild voices that, that, dark voices that come out, they're all coming out of our wounds. We're all wounded, but we're not all broken. Broken is a good thing. Broken is when you come to the cross and you see Jesus wounded for you, and you are undone. You said, oh God, how could you do this for me? The Spirit. See, the Spirit is always driving us towards the gospel. He's pounding this into us. If you're in Christ, everything I'm saying right now makes total sense to you. And if you're not in Christ, the invitation is for you to come in. Become broken. Because when you're broken, you are hungry for what God has. You are hungry and humbled by His voice. You want to hear more. And not only that, when the Spirit fills you, you will be filled with a love that isn't sourced in you because you just can't. How hard is it to love this unlovable person that you've somehow said these vows to? I mean, how hard is that? Only the Spirit of God, when you ask Him to fill you, it takes you to Jesus. Can He give you that kind of love? So do you want that kind of love? Ask yourself, do I want that kind of love? Holy Spirit, come into our hearts now. Fill us, God, with that kind of love. We pray in Jesus' name.